hello and welcome to the 17th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Wednesday the 10th of July 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we continue our leisurely amble through Chapter 6, Unity in Diversity. The panel consists of the usual stalwarts, C. Derek Varn, Sophie and Lexi Dog Robot. This week I have the two new Patreons to thank, Anton Panacook, yes, THE Anton Panacook no less, and Redneck Black Flag. You too can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. I promise to have the vote on the next reading group series in the coming days, so it is a good time to sign up. For that, and the patron-only episodes, of course, one of which will be shortly in the offing. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel, and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Here's a question that I think it does kind of get into where you you do have to be sort of where maybe the left right spectrum of socialists doesn't really work. We would still consider the Stalinist and I guess not the left communist part of the left of communism, uh, of socialism. Um, it depends on what era of Stalinism, and this is actually something I think we have that this has in its favor. What era of Stalinism are we talking about? Because the thing, what? the thing that's consistent about Stalinism is the authority structure that they mm. that they promote. It's not yeah. their electoral strategy, or, or the or even their like economic content. No, like the economic content is is also different. It's the yeah. authority structure. But maybe the singular axis is not useful. Because if it makes us to stay with parts of the Stalinist left, even though they're destructive records, but not the right for the same reasons, then you're, it seems like a, it actually seems like special pleading for one side and not the other. So you can maintain some kind of big hen strategy. It really does. The thing about this spectrum is that it makes the most sense when you're talking about the first and second internationals, the third international and and if you include like the left columns of the third international, I actually think they they're a little more continuous with this you might say orthodox tradition, whereas like the actual problems of Leninism and Marxism quote unquote in power really distort this whole legacy in a way that yeah you can't just collapse into the left right spectrum. Well, that to me also indicates that that we're not dealing with the fact that our our time might not rhyme with this at all. I mean, I know, I know my dinner talks about that, but it's something that increasingly I'm thinking about when we talk about this, because I'm like, but we we can't act like, I don't know, the middle half of the 20th century didn't happen. It's a big determinant on the kind of horizons people can see, because people see the potential for atrocity in any hope, (laughs) (laughs) like before, and like, we'll burn out on things before really giving them a shot. And, and, um, and perhaps and for, it, and for like decent yeah. reasons, to be honest. Yeah. It's not about giving things a shot. It's about long-term patience and 100-year projects. That's what it's about. I mean, I, I am honestly kind of more inclined to say that we shouldn't really bother with either Stalinist or the right. Yeah. I think for different reasons, but I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm skeptical. And maybe this is a strategy that might work in more... It might work in Europe, but in the United States, I don't see any viable way to push the right wing out of the Democratic Party. That is, that is the party. Right. I also uh, don't. There's also no workers' movement to merge with, despite all the. Uh, I, I mean, like this is another elephant in the room. Is a whole Morja formula. There's yes, you see a resurgence of like guild union striking and with teachers and stuff, and that's important. You are actually seeing real, you know, honest to god, like service sector unionizing attempts, which is great. Don't get me wrong; I'm not, yeah. I'm not shitting on that. But you still are looking at the smallest portion of the labor force being uh, unionized since there's been unions. This book is is definitely taking the long view and assuming that a process that has been constant to capitalism will reassert itself. There's a I sort of Marxist leap of faith that, that this is a nadir of the labor movement and you know that we're not uh, just looking at the new normal totally. I do think strategy of patience is probably like one of the best things about all of this, to be honest. Like I don't think we should abandon the strategy of patience. 
at least in America, we should focus our efforts on using the McNair scale on a coalition of the center and the left, rather than bothering with Stalinists or the right. But what's yeah. the center? Because the center in America right now is full of Stalinists. Well, that's sort of the thing. So we take on that left and right axis for strategy. And then within these people that accept the strategy, we call out for different reasons, for, for reasons that are related, but not like subsumable into the one axis. We make it, we have to make another break. It's not enough just to take this on. Although the other, the other issues is, is like the, the far, far left, like left communist and otherwise. I mean, yes, you have anar uh, anarcho-communists who'll join the DSA and for some reason be friendly with Maoists because that seems to happen a lot. American New Left, you know? Most of the left won't play ball at all. So even, even right now when you have like communizers uh, entering the fray with the DSA, which is nutty, there, there's still a core of like, like principled left communists who like won't talk to anybody, and I'm not talking about trots. They're like, no, nah, no, nah, until like we have the workers' movement, some you know emerges spontaneously from from meat rotting or something, like maggots. Yeah, uh, we're not, we'll not going to do anything. We're, we're not going to say anything. Like, we're just going to sit that. here like, like cultivating our communist, our, our communist militants until the great moment happens. Our tendency, our our um, current can emerge and like you can't do anything with those people because they won't they don't play ball that's kind of i think like the, the to address the issue of like there isn't really a center now like besides stalinists and stalinist sympathizers i think that's where the patience comes in and we have to slowly talk to people and try i don't i hate saying build our bases but we have to do something to get ideas out there you know what i mean we can't force people to become centrist or whatever it's just through the slow work of organizing, I think, is how you can build that up. I think the best hope in any of, you know, people we would call left in the context of this book was probably with the more principled anarchists who aren't weird Maoists in the closet or who are willing to... Who, there are some who are willing to play ball. That's a lot of my friends, really. I, I think in the terms of American politics, though, we have to remember that they had a dominant moment, not only, like it, as little as nine years ago, that its failure is why there are so many Marxists. Like Marxism in America yeah. was like was like a was like an antiquarian society filled with former Trotskyists and a few people who beat off to Soviet memorabilia. That's not the case anymore, but it's largely mm -hmm. because the anarchists failed in Occupy, whatever vague whateverness they were trying to do. That hasn't been dealt with in our context either. And and yet, in a way, it sort of proves your point, Sophie, because that is where the core of Marxism currently comes from, is a bunch of people who are anarchists before 2012. Even for those anarchists who don't become Marxists, a lot of them do realize that, like, you know, Occupy and the Anti-Globe movement, like, failed, and it sucked. I crack jokes with them about the some of the ridiculousness of Occupy all the time. I, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that compared to like right-wing social democrats and Stalinists, there are some anarchists out there that are worth talking to, I think. Well, I, I agree, but the, the thing is, I know more anarchists in coalition with the DSA than they are with even centrist Marxists. I mean, like, that's also just kind of an objective fact. John Michael yeah. Colon, Libertarian Socialist Caucus, it's one of the largest caucuses yeah. within the DSA. I don't get it either. I don't really understand how you justify it, but like that's where we all are. And when I actually go to DSA meetings, and I now do so regularly, who they end up working with are former Democrats term Maoists. I don't think out of ideological necessity. I think those are the people who actually do things other than reading groups. Was Marx not have to? Did he not have his own Stalinists in his day? Did he not have the Blanquists? Like right, there's there's the there's the kind of Blancists like leftists, but there's also the Lasallians and their organizing tradition is kind of where, from what I understand, democratic centralism comes from, and where the whole culture, genuinely somewhat like authoritarian structure of even you know the good old days of German social democracy. It metastasizes under the Russians, but like it yeah. comes from there. It's not like that. 
they were just, you know, yeah, as a lot of people as democratic as they make it up to be. It's funny because a lot of anarchists will are and like uh, autonomous Marxists will blame that on Kalski, and it's like, no, that goes back to LaSalle, and that was in the culture of the S by day. And Marx yeah. accepted it but criticized it. One of the things that I have been been flirting with recently is trying to bridge what I know from like Das Kapital and Marx's writings with what I know about his his actual history in these parties. And also like the fact that for a long time, Marx basically said like, I mean, basically since the failure of the liberal revolution in 1858 and a lot of the parties didn't pan out, he's like, you know, I'm just going to hide in the library until like there's an actual party that I can play with. And then when, when he when there was such a party and he had to deal with them, he didn't always like what he did in the party context and what he actually thought were not consistent. And I don't think people deal with that. I honestly that division leads to like Altosaire's pseudo epistemological break and all that. Right. Because it's hard yeah. to square it is, is a little bit hard to square some of the political actions and some of the stuff he did on programs. Yeah, okay. So explain these things. Explain these differences then. Well, one, the most important document for what Marxism means by, by socialism was not published in his own time because it would have been politically disadvantageous to do so. And he censored it. The Critique of Goethe program. The Critique of Goethe program itself has concessions to things that seem, if you reach free capital, don't necessarily make, make total sense. Like, so one of the things that I've pointed out is while you can use the Critique of the Goethe program to fight Writers, you actually it actually does make a lot of left communism untenable because yeah. the idea, for example, is a total abolition of value happening all at once. That's not something that Marx argues for, and it's actually clear in the critique of the Goethe program. There are clear stages, and there's like the remnants of bourgeois society for quite a while. Look, and, it's an intermediate uh, text on a lot of grounds, but yeah, know. I mean, it, it kind of hits everybody, honestly. If you really read it closely, it's been something I've been thinking about. And so, but Marx suppresses it. So, because that would have, he thought that that was released. It would have destroyed the Espe Day. And for all the shady stuff he said about LaSalle, he wasn't willing to risk that. So in a way, Marx was, was more willing to deal with the rightist. At the same token, he also took his ball and went home a whole damn lot. There's long peers where he's like, well, I'm going to go hang out in the library because there's nothing you guys are going to do that's going to be of any importance at all. Bye. He, he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, like, yes, he was in the party with these people, but he wasn't doing anything with them. He was hoping that maybe they come to their senses later, I think. I mean, we don't know actually what he thought. We, we got snarky letters between him and Ingalls that he didn't want published. <laughs> and and like very inconsistent attitudes where like you know in one year he's saying something horribly racist about LaSalle and then oh next and, and then like and then when he dies he cries. I mean like like if you try to read this as a totally clear and consistent political theory of Marx, you don't get one. And I think that's why honestly everybody goes to Lenin, because Marx didn't explain his political thinking. He never yeah. got there. Like, if you read uh, Hal Draper's excellent, huge thing on Marxist theory of revolutions, you you, you find out that capital is supposed to be the first part of explaining the entirety of bourgeois society. So, like, the anti-economistic yeah. people actually do have a point that Marx's vision was much, much larger than that. But he never got to any of it because it was too big. There was too much to do. We don't know what his what his actual political theory would be beyond the fact that we have that like our best text for that are the critique of the Goethe program and the Brumaire. Could, one which could, is a piece of journalism. So could we get all of his writings and we could put them into like an AI and get them to formulate our strategy? Oh, yeah. I, I have a feeling that we're not gonna like what comes out. It's just a hunch, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean I do think it leads to people like positing stuff like in all seriousness, like uh, you know, like I swear to you that a, a mutual friend of ours, who I won't name because I don't <laughs> want to shame him, like really does seem to believe that like a supercomputer is the only way to do this, right. because it would be the only way to abolish value fast enough. I mean, but, in, in, ter in terms of like a broader theory where revolutionary agency can, you know, apply this stuff, that, that seems plausible, but I don't think that's how you mean it. I, 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 the, the chicken or the egg on on all this doesn't seem to have been worked out by anybody. My, my point here though, is, is that I think that's why you can't not deal with Lenin 
and why everyone goes yeah. to Lennon is because you don't actually get a lot of clear answers in Marx. Uh, in Ingalls, you get more than Marx does. I mean, Ingalls is actually probably, frankly, a less acute philosophical and economic thinker, but actually a little bit more acute of a political thinker. I would agree um, with that. Okay. I would agree with that. And, and he's m more understanding of the American situation as well, so he's more useful for my analyses of my own society, you might say. Yeah, well, his his uh, letters on America are, like, way icky. And as you post the Marxist, he's like, well, you know, the bourgeois party, you know, will develop into socialism because he's, I guess he's um, seeing the radical Republicans as hope. Because, uh, I mean, our oppositional parties, so you, you, compare us to, you compare our bourgeois political tradition to Britain's, right? And the difference is there's no landed gentry party. There is the bourgeois party that has some yeoman characteristics and thus is populist aka the democrats and there's a bourgeois party of large-scale develop of, of capital proper aka the republicans and the republicans become less progressive over time if capitalism develops and the democrats become more schizophrenic as the sectors of other parts of bourgeois society get subsumed into it and they don't make any sense as an allegiance so that doesn't mirror in the in the European politics, but it's also we didn't have any feudal thing to overcome. We had our own weird bullshit. I, but it makes me wonder, like in some degree, and I don't mean this in in like a negative, like oh my god, this is racist sense. I mean this in a literal sense. Is this book so Eurocentric that it's not useful globally? I I, I think broadly speaking, that this is at a high enough level of abstraction that. Like the fact that we're in, you know, a, a settler society that was like born out of an anti-colonial revolution and therefore we don't have that exact feudal dynamic, you know, this many years down the line, I don't think that's that important. I, I actually kind of think the, the broader characteristics of capitalism structure the limits of what things like what kind of strategic options we have, you know, what our choices are, period. And so, on that level, I think you, you can still take this framework. But, you know, I, I think you can take the framework. I don't know if you go with the strategy that he advocates. Yeah, so you, let's talk about abandonment then, because this might yeah. tie up some of this. Um, you want me to read it, Tom? Hit it, Derek. Hit us. This conception was, in fact, very rapidly abandoned. The socialists, including their lefts, proved unwilling to enter into agreement for the common action with the communist on these terms. The initial result was a period of zigzags between unity with elements of the left socialist and trade unionist on the basis of self-sistership of the communist in order to fudge the political differences between them and the simple denunciation of the left by communists and the isolation of the communist. Like a lot of my friends who I used to organize with kind of have this idea of not with the Democratic Party, but with with more liberal groups that are doing like actually good work, uh, in particular like around a group that helps migrants get to you know their next destination who are being dropped off here. And I, I I like that work, but I think one of the things that like kind of bugs me, and it was something that bugged me about René Gravault that I tried to justify was this kind of this fudging that happened, right? Like that people were hesitant to describe themselves as revolutionaries or kind of downplay these differences. And I justified it to myself by saying, well, they're just describing the concepts without using jargony buzzwords that will scare people off. And with Brennan Gravault, that was true I, I, to a larger extent, I think, because it was explicitly anti-capitalist, anti-nation state, etc. But I, I, I just kind of worry that like maybe my friends are watering themselves down too much when they're inter interacting people doing this important work and it, it just kind of is like this weird parallel where almost the strategy makes more sense in kind of like activist work with different orgs that are generally like liberal versus doing it with a democratic party but then do you fall into these same trappings well here's the thing with the mm. activist work mm. you have a, you have something much more clearly to unify around that you could suppress opinions about for and not the suppression of opinions is a good thing, but you have a clear agenda. When it comes to like socialism and the Democratic Party, I want to be frank. Like even even the left, quote unquote, even the Marxist left and the Marxist center, we don't agree on what it is. 
Like, so we can agree on like um, helping out immigrants. We can agree on doing uh, certain mutual aid projects. We can agree on stopping police from being able to search cars by fixing brake lights. You know, we can all agree on that in a very activisty way. Even even if you picked a group that was somewhat consistent and kind of small, like the ISO, RIP, by the way, you would not get the same answer on what socialism was remotely. And they had a program, so which they strategically ignored, but they had a program. The issue that I got from, from thinking about this in the Trotskyist context is like the is in a in a way like the problems of the United Front strategy lead does lead you to the popular front strategy, even when you don't call it that. Because I, I'm I'm not gonna lie, the in the case of the ISO and the IMT and a lot of these other groups, and they're gonna get mad at me for saying this, but they would just like completely drop critiques they'd have for decades and run in the opposite direction so that they can maintain comrades or relevancy. Yeah, that's that zigzagging and that's popular front shit too. So the difference becomes almost irrelevant in practice. I don't know how you fix that unless you have a very clear definition of what you mean by socialism, but that in and of itself would split immediately. And so I get kind of pessimistic. I actually like talking to Tom because Tom like revives my hope at all for anything right? you know, where I get all sackcloth and ashes and like, I'm just going to hang out in the mountains while the world falls apart. But, um, <laughs> Derek, then I bring, then I bring you right back down with a good insult. So it's kind of you're left you're left neutral like you're left right back a square one you're like you're like the you're both the base and the acid <laughs> you just end up being fucking like water that. oh man my but, father my father once got covered in caustic soda he'd, he'd run home oh, shit. oh god and, and ran through like the house we were watching him go, running through the house why is he running through the house taking stripping his clothes off as oh, he's, wow. oh god That's oh, actually <laughs> And this has nothing to – well, maybe it does have something to do with caustic soda. We'll get to that in a minute. And I actually want to read the next two, two uh, paragraphs. An yeah, example of the other confusion about how to apply the United Front policy can be found in the case of the relationship between the British communist and the trade union official lefts. And that between the Soviet trade unionist and the general council of the TUC and the run-up during the 1926 general strike. Both the party and the commentary zigzag between promoting illusions in the official left and denouncing them. And a range of failures of the same period are discussed in Trotsky's Third International after Lenin. And the late 1920s saw an abrupt shift to the left in the Soviet Union, the turn to class struggle in the countryside and forced collectivization, and in the common turn. And in the place of the United Front policy, the task of communist parties were now mainly to fight against the other socialists, a.k.a. this is the third period. This turn was justified by the fact that the world situation, having passed through a period of post-war revolutionary crisis and a period of stabilization in the mid-1920s, was now entering a third period of open crisis. Trotsky called the new policy the third period of commentary and errors, and the expression the third period as a description of the dead-end sectarian isolationism had struck. This policy continued until, in 1933, it met an utter disaster in the Nazi coup in Germany. And I want to bring this up. Because I've always been fascinated about the third period, and here's why. The third period analysis, analysis of who actually made up the majority of the political leadership of the fascist was actually more correct than Trotsky's. <laughs> the results of that applying that strategically were disastrous. Oh, yeah. So what do you no. do? Yeah. Because the, the, the analysis actually was more correct. The results were more damaging. I actually 100% agree, but that's the whole problem that McNair is chewing out. Is chewing through. Like, how do we how do we get out of zigzag mode there? Because yeah, okay, that is true about the national bourgeoisie, and that is true about like the Salian socialism. It is kind of fashy. Like it is it is sort of basically those same you know same energy. You know, it's like it's the same like class uh, forces at work. And like it could easily go in that direction again. It's it's they're not the good guys. This is conservative socialism. This is the thing Marx was fighting. It's not Marxism. <laughs> like that is like true. But how do you deal with this? Right, because if you if you denounce the social democrats totally, then the right literally gets to slaughter them, and you do nothing. You can't allow that. 
this it's this this is why I like this book. This book is really trying to answer hard questions. I think this is maybe one of the weaker points in the book, frankly. I think that his like overall framework, his historical analysis, pretty much spot on. Yeah, could you clarify a little bit there why you think this is the weakest bit? Like, what particular about about this analysis of, oh, of no, no. the United Front? It's not so much the analysis, but what he kind of says towards the end, which it's is the conclusion. To... Which is the conclusion? I think you actually agree with okay. a lot of the problems that pose. Right? Like, like the analysis is excellent, but like what he proposes to do about it. But this is also the one flaw in the analysis, at least insofar as it works for us, is something that we can double back to because it's in the four point thing on Trotsky. What was uh, Trotsky's uh, 1922 report on the United Front? This is page 105. He's got a, a few good points that he draws out from here. The first thing he says, though, this the question is posed of a United Front because the right wing still lead broad masses. The United Front is not a permanent concept, but a road to a higher form of unity in which the unity of class is expressed in the Communist Party and the common term. Now, this this idea that the right wing still leads broad masses is directly challenged in the way working class participation in electoral politics now functions. Meaning? It, it, it does it. They don't vote. <laughs> yeah. In America, we're also vote, really. And, and, is, and, and most countries where, where democracy isn't compulsed, they don't vote. It's not just the U.S. either. It's, it's just not there. Like, they kind of know that this, this isn't for them. This is for the managers. It's, it's a truly depressing situation. You know, it's an anti-democratic situation, regardless of whatever formal mechanisms there are. It systematically distorts, you know, what would be popular will. Does it? In the United States, for sure. But look at look at a country like Australia, where it's compulsory voting. Yeah, and it doesn't change much. Doesn't change well, it, much. It does, no, 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 it doesn't change much either. And it points to, there's an underlying cause to that. It's not literally the fact that they're not going to the polls. It's that there's a loss of faith in the ability for these institutions to actually represent popular wealth and that participating in them is, is fruitless and illusory. There's a great nihilism about these institutions. It's hard to overstate. It's maybe probably the biggest thing in American politics that stands out. You know, I'm sure this is the case in other places, but I, I can't really speak for that. It seems very much like the overwhelming value, the value of associating with these things when you're so powerless and they're so odious is, is so is vanishing. There's even something towards the end of this where Trotsky talks about when you're very marginal and you're associating with something very powerful and how the dynamic is basically different. And I don't wonder if we're in that set of conditions. I actually think all these points are worth going over. Let's do number two then, because we, we must have skipped ahead. The idea of the workers united front this has two aspects. One, it is a unity of the working class as a whole in action for elementary common interest i.e. including anarchists, it is not merely an electoral or parliamentary combination of communists and socialists. It is counterposed to left unity that includes liberal parties such as the Cartel de Gauche and to the SPD's post-war coalition policy. So I think this point is kind of what I was trying to get at earlier, uh, where based on what, what, what Lexi and Derek were talking about as far as how toxic and how little faith people have in the electoral system, that maybe any kind of workers united front shouldn't really be about electoral politics at all. And I'm not saying don't ever participate in electoral politics. I'm not a left communist in that I believe that that is always bad or whatever. But I think the the situation we're in now, it doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, maybe it makes a little bit more sense in European countries, but even then, based on what Derek was saying, like it doesn't seem like there's a lot of faith in any of these liberal bourgeois institutions anymore, and I think for good reason. It, it, it's interesting to me, actually, as a side note, Lexi, about how may, and maybe this actually supports one of Tom's points that he made. I don't know if he made it on air when we were arguing off air. That uh, people don't understand this because this book is often seen as a call for left unity itself. I don't know that it actually really is. It's probably best described as a as sect unity. Yeah. The, the question that I find right. interesting is that point two also actually follows from point one. I believe already said point one doesn't apply in at least the United States and maybe a lot of the world. 
like the idea of a workers united front could only make sense if the workers were already engaged in both electoral and non-electoral politics right but if there is no engagement with either i mean there might also what does non-electoral politics mean if you're not actively overthrowing your government right like i mean well, it does yeah, mean something but it's vague I'm, I'm honestly the only thing that i can think of in these conditions is you have a sort of and this obviously goes in dangerous territory but like the only thing you can do with elections is in, in the united states our, like our institutions are always portrayed as sanctified and holy and, and good in some way. And you can't really attack these things with more good. You need some level of irony and some level of like, I don't know, honestly, like a sense of like revenge against the political class to really animate a, a, anything like, you know, a working class base. And like, Which unfortunately has been mostly ceded to the right, at least in the United States. And increasingly throughout the world, this cuts right. And considering that this is our current class political situation, it's pretty vital that we figure out a way to channel this into some kind of electoral expression that can attack in some way, like the military state, capital, these sorts of things, at least on a propagandistic level. I don't see what prevents something like this from happening in a society. I'm not so much a structuralist where I think that nothing like that is possible. There has to be some way to do something very spiteful to this walled garden of managerial interest. And so let's look at the point three, because so far, if we've rejected the point one, thus point two doesn't stand, although we might still agree with I B still, I, I, I still think that, yeah, B and B, B stands. B stands, and A would stand if point one was true, but doesn't stand without it being true. It might be the case that anarchists have the same problem as a lot of other political actors, and that we would also want to avoid them. But I'm not, I'm not going to say that I, I totally yeah. agree with that. You're, you have a point. <laughs> it provisionally, like, you know, I could accept one or the other, honestly. Well, I, I got to ask you, I mean, this is where, where I'm, I'm going to sound like a douchey Marxist. Anarchists in the early 20th century context had specific like objective goals that made sense involving like agrarian labor and stuff like that. Mm, um, yeah, no, that's a good point. Anarchists in the late really 20th thing. century is largely an ideological position. And while they do have specific yeah. goals, like there's not one or two, there's not a, a clear set of consistent material interests between anarchist groups that I could generalize in a way that doesn't make them just as open to being weirdo politicos as everybody else. Right. You're 100% but, right, Derek. Yeah, I, I guess I'd say this, is that the best anarchists that I know are basically just go through in microcosm the process that Blancist conspiratorial socialism did towards like Marx and like just as a personal project, they go beyond anarchism because they take the goal so seriously. That's really what Marxism is at the end of the day. Like if you really wanted a society with like the minimum of, of hierarchy, you would have to think about class and you would need to you know address that. Like, right. That makes sense. They get driven into the same stuff if they're thinking clearly. <laughs> And and if not, it, it could be virtuous, but very often it's just because they're hipsters and like kind of subculturally interested. You know. So let let's go to point three then. It is the chief and categorical condition, and that's in quotation marks, that the Communist Party must retain autonomy and independence and its freedom to present its own views and its criticism of those who oppose communists. Yeah, I don't think any of us would object to that. Um, no. Although what that means right now is a, a little bit unclear. Four, it is a precondition that for the application of this policy, the communists should have a party. I don't know that we <laughs> agree with that. That the EC thesis warns of the danger that United Front policy will be used as a basis for reversion to an or unorganized left in a broader fudge unity. Ooh, that hurts. Equally, as yep. Trotsky put it, in the case where the Communist Party shall remain an organization of numerically insignificant minority, the question of its conduct on mass struggle front does not assume a decisive practical and organizational significance in such conditions mass actions remain under the leadership of the old organizations which by reason of their powerful traditions continue to play a decisive role 
And that last bit there me, it is. ends up actually saying that you're in the. It, it's not different than the Popular Front, really, anyway. Well, it seems like that set of conditions apply to us right now. That like we don't have the kind of like workers institutions like uh, even on the level of like the confused clarity of the UK. Well, there's yeah. one exception to that, though, Lexi. You're generally right, but the exception to that is that I'm assuming what Trotsky's saying here is that you remain under the old leadership of the Social Democratic Party. We don't even have that. Yes, yes, of course. There's oh. always that. <laughs> yeah, but you're at a low ad, but that's fair enough. That's fine. So, so we should all enter the DSA, but destroy it. Is that what we're saying? Like, I don't know what we're saying. Like, well, well, the, D, the DSA isn't parliament. Or, you know, isn't no, it, it, it's not, you know, it's, it's it's not the like the legislation. analogy we have, though. If we're taking this, if we're going to take this thing seriously, that's the closest analogy we have. Yeah, I mean, like the closest analogy is you would yeah. enter, you would all enter into the largest, least, least restrictive sect, right? Right, right, right. right. Which yeah. would be the DSA, not be Marxist center, as it turns out. Which no, I think is an, is an interesting thing because this taxes influence chunk of the Marxist center. It would definitely lead you to DSA. It would it would lead to the DSA. You, you would not try to like this is interesting, right? If you take this book seriously, all that base building stuff. <laughs> where are you getting that from? From this, you know, and the 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 smarter Marxist center people know that. This leads me back to the to the abandonment point and what we actually see with the with the third period. And then I guess we can uh, let Tom move us forward and talk about the problem of unity. So this is the paragraph I wanted to do. So, so far, we've, they've had the split from the right, and then they've gone to United Front, and then they went to fighting with this, the Social Democrats, and now then they went to unity through self-censorship. And here we're going to end up a few years after all the split. Let's read this here. <laughs> In fact, the common turn went beyond unity through self-censorship and fudges to the concept of the anti-fascist People's Front. In doing so, they had decisively abandoned the early common turns concept in which the United Workers Front was opposed to the coalitionism of the German SPD and the French Cartel de Gauche. They had, indeed, begun to situate themselves on the terrain of the coalitionist strategy of the old right wing of the Second International. This meant, in turn, that they had begun to abandon the whole strategic line of Marxism as such. That is, that the only road to socialism is it the self-emancipation of the working class as a class. Which, by the way, I think I've, I think every Marxist I know eventually seems to give up on that. So, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm not going to call out anybody's name because, you know, they're friends. But I do feel like I, he I hear less and less talk about the working class as a class and more and more talk about the party as a party, the organizations as like neighborhood organizations or something. That's fascinatingly disturbing. Because, yeah, that's a damn well, I mean, yeah. it also indicates that Marxists don't believe it, like in a real sense that almost no Marxist actually believe in Marxism after certain, like there seems to be a time of frustration where you just, the long view become you start giving up on it and god i sound almost sound like a right winger saying this but like so you you substitute all this other stuff for it this is why i think revolutionary marxism needs to be rescued from leninism in particular because leninism has the justification for the substitution of the party for the class that's what it ends up really meaning and to a degree yes it makes sense for the socialist nerds to think about their own agency, to figure out what they can do. And it kind of makes sense that a bunch of, you know, reject managers or whatever would be able to organize an, an opposition and some kind of incursion into the, into the legislature or something. And so it makes sense to have some kind of political orientation as, you know, declasse or, you know, petty bourgeoisie or whatever the, the nerds are. But the, to, in order to do that, and the whole reason that you should be doing that, is in service to working class emancipation, <laughs> and and without that engine, there's not there's not like it's going nowhere. Well, it's not even that it's going nowhere. There is there isn't like a lot of there isn't something to collect probably, these smaller it's probably, sects. It's probably worse than going nowhere. It's actually probably actively destructive. Yeah, it, yeah, that's kind of kind of what it's I not meant. A, 
it's not ridiculous to say that. Like that's often thought of as a post left sentiment. That's thought as, you know, like a really, really, you know, I don't know. It's it's thought of as being like anti left. It's thought of as being super postmodern. But I think it's just empirically true. And if you're a real Marxist, you have to deal with it. Yeah, so I, I want to read the next two paragraphs because I actually think they're useful. Why did this happen? In retrospect, Trotsky and the Trotskyists analyze these shifts as driven by the evolution of policy, in particular foreign policy of Soviet bureaucracy, and carried into effect the top-down bureaucratic control until the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the Comintern. However, since 1945, we have seen repeated examples of Trotskyist organizations performing the same flip-flops between unity on the basis of self-censorship, followed by sudden leftist shifts into third-period denunciations of right-wing workers' movements as purely bourgeois and sectarian isolation. Sectarian isolation can be equally found amongst a sudden shift into fudge unity on the basis of self-censorship. The evolution of the British Day since 2000 has been a striking example. Also see SALT and their on-again, off-again relationship with Democrats since the CWAT campaign. See also the ISO's entire history forever and ever, amen. See also, um, including with the the British SWP, and also, weirdly, in the last five years, all these parties seem to be dying anyway. Good. Are, <laughs> you know, I think, I don't know that, I, I, I would want to believe it's good, but how they're dying is not is not great. It's the same thing as like, oh God, when the Soviet Union comes down, you know, then worker subjectivity will come back after Gorbachev, then our turn. Like, I mean, yeah. Oh God. I mean, like, like I'm thinking about this too with uh, a real, yeah, there's the reason why the ISO went under because of a rape scandal that we've all known about for like six years or seven years. But the, the reason why it, it fell apart now is also because it was becoming a tiny organization, but its publishing wing was blowing up. And so parties that had real, when I say oh, yeah. real money, I mean real money, like millions of dollars making money off of the anti-Trump train, also began to zigzag in ways that made holding the party together, uh, the tendency, it's not even a party, the organization together nearly impossible. So both its internal authoritarian weird structure developed over time and its relationship to right-wing well, right wing of the socialist movement and maybe the left wing of like not socialism ended up destroying it. And so like it, this goes back to my my whole question that I asked years ago. How come like if anarchists, leftcom, Trotskyists are, are Maoists, you'll find organizations that all do the same things regardless. And they function the same. They, they do the same thing. Like so the ideological differences don't seem to matter. And that's worrying. And you even see this on the variety of positions on like economic and but, foreign policy but, too. But like Derek, you know, people are, they fall into the same stupid strategies all the time. They're not consistent. People are entirely not consistent. Who's consistent? But the, 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 that's not an answer though. I mean, like, let, let's, let, let's be fair. You're completely correct. I'm not arguing with that. And I'm not even saying, but the idea that it's all just our individual bad will. I don't mean individual. I think that there are institutional prerogatives. Uh, okay. There's lots of things that happen. Well, yeah, yeah. So you know, we actually agree. Like, like, I, in I the general society. We, we agree know. then. And I think that the, what's worrying is we're not overcoming those. Like, we don't know what they are exactly. Like, I think if you look at it right now, we'll see the disintegration of a lot of these sects. At the same time, we're seeing the rise in interest in socialism and communism. And that is a positive thing, that these sects will go, go the way of the high bike when things start going. They will fall apart. Their members will drift into the DSA or into this one or the other one. Like, I've just listened to a recent episode by that podcast, Regrettable Century. And they had one of, they were ex-ISO by the sound of it. And they were talking about it. And they made a lot of points about how, like, about, about the failings and, and, and how they expected it all to happen. But well, like, yeah, I, and, I, and, I, and I felt that because, I mean, we lived through a micro, I mean, Lexi and I were part of a, a, a micro, micro, micro sect. They did the, uh, yeah. the exact same thing and then liquidated into literally the people you're talking to right now 
and 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 then to a minor caucus in the DSA that liquidated into another caucus in the DSA that liquidated itself yeah. about a year ago. So like this happened. But this is not. It's not bad, but, that's, but it's not. It's not I don't bad. know that it's. I don't know that it's a sign that we the interest in socialism has not corresponded for the reemergence of a proper workers movement yet. And that's, yet, that no. is, that, that's something that I think, honestly, before this book could matter, we need a strategy book about how to deal with that. I but, would like to see a uh, labor organizing game theory book for, for workers. You know, that's something I'd like to say. Other than the ISOs or no, the, I mean, not the ISOs, the IWWs, I'm getting my acronyms confused. There's so many that are stupid. <laughs> If, if IWW is doing, you know, wobbly game theory, you show me. It's not Look, game theory, but they have, like, uh, and I know that's from, like, both talking the Wobblies and while it was interviewed on a podcast, I can't remember which one, but they have, like, a pretty well thought out, like, manual as far as organizing the shop floor. Yeah, uh, and it, it right. works in very specific contexts in liberal cities, which admittedly, I'm not shitting on because the fact that they're doing anything at all after, like, literally 60 years of basically being a remnant core organization that mostly existed for nostalgia. That's great. But it does what I went through listening to their stuff and I was like, so in a right to work state, you can do what exactly? If you're not large enough to literally armed insurrect against the state government, not a lot. And they don't have any political agitation for changing the conditions in those states. Now, for right. our international audience, that's not relevant to them. But for America, that's huge. So it works if you're like in Seattle or Portland or a place with, for whatever reason, even if they're kind of right wing and scary, um, in the case of Oregon, has like pretty good labor protections. So, so this points to the necessity of a centrist strategy, because if you're interested in doing labor organizing in that context, you can't like sit idly by when it comes to elections, even if there's a systematic distortion in those institutions. Yeah, honestly, this is why I'm not a left com anymore. Yeah. Okay, let's read this last paragraph here and then we'll wrap it up for tonight because we're not going to finish this chapter tonight. We've been uh, really chewing the cud on some of this stuff. So let let, let me have a go and read it because my voice is so uh, mellifluous. Okay. The truth is that the dynamic was not solely driven by Soviet bureaucracy and Stalinism as a particular caste political form, but also by internal contradictions in the early Comintern policy. The key contradiction is between the United Front struggle for unity on the basis of freedom of criticism and of party factional organisation in the class movement as a whole, and the 1921 rejection of unity on the basis of freedom of criticism and of factions in the Communist Party as such. To see why it's necessary to go a level deeper into the theoretical grounds for supposing that the united class front is necessary so this is kind of getting to your thing a little bit derek it's like all of these different like parties whether they're trotskyists or maoists or even anarchists or stuff they do all very similar type of stuff in the end and sometimes it's not so much about their ideology it's about other stuff i mean one of the things when i was uh fighting for like, you know, more democratic sex um, in the communist movement with Lexi and our micro sect is we actually were trying to look at not so much the ideology of Trotskyists or Stalinists, but like the voting structures and the holdover parts of what period of this, of the Bolsheviks they were basing their voting structures off of and, and, and all this. I mean, ultimately I decided that it wasn't enough, but that really is an issue. So, you know, for example, like, even the Trotskyists use the post-1921 Bolshevik voting structure for how they pick leadership, which is slate and open. And that wasn't the case before 1921. So they still use like the Civil War standard. And the Trotskyist theory about that is ideology and leadership that's causing Stalinism to emerge, not the structure of it, which is why I'm so big on hitting on these structures, because I think it seems to be objective on like most fronts that the Trotskyists are wrong about how they're different from Stalinists. That they are, but in some ways, when the anarchists are like, "Yeah, but you would have done the same thing," like the anarchists are kind of right. Oh man, it's gonna make so many people mad at me. But whatever. Shout out to all the left comms out there, because in some ways, I think you guys are like more right than you think you are. But you're wrong about the most important mm -hmm. thing. Uh <laughs> well, no, I mean it, it's it's worth saying the autonomous, like definitely 
distort Marxism in a way, but like less than the other dominant traditions. Of well, I, I also I'm not just, not just autonomous. Really? Like I think the Verdigas have a lot have a lot of really important stuff to say too. They're just too damn Leninist for anybody. Yeah, except they're Leninist, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, don't, don't do that. If it wasn't for that, they'd be awesome. Um, no. Um, well, <laughs> right. If their I mean, defining characteristic was different, you know. <laughs> well, okay. This is we can we can actually have a long running about Bordigism because the thing is, Bordigism not it's invariant program aside. What's attractive about it seems to change on what period you're looking at what Bordiga is saying. Because he's not consistent either. None of these people are are as, like except for maybe Marx and Engels are all that particularly consistent. That's like the elephant in the room is like you can call every one of these people against themselves, right? Like it's kind of maddening. Read read this book and argue with it. Like really put it to the test because it seems this is one of the most fruitful books for talking about history, man. I mean, even if I don't, even if I come up thinking that it's wrong, I think it's been the most interestingly wrong book i've read in a long time yeah this is no, still one of the greats on my criticisms like you know notwithstanding I'll, i recommend this book to anyone that's like that i don't think is going to drown in it all my criticism are belong to us <laughs> <laughs> all my base building are belong to you okay <laughs> oh, God. that was particularly for sophie okay Thanks. let's go offline all right Ciao. bye good night On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. Thank you.